The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, in the last uh, two messages, we looked at how strong this theme of justice is in the Bible. Justice isn't pictured as just a, a special interest group to be championed by some subculture in the church uh, that has a particular passion for it. It's one of the primary ways that God describes himself. Just like love, justice ought to permeate our character and inform everything that we do. Doing justice is one of the most foundational descriptions of living a God-honoring life. We tend to think of justice as simply punishment for wrongdoing. Uh, Biblical justice does address the issue of lawbreaking, but it's so much more than that. The justice pictured in the Bible is also a proactive, restorative justice that seeks the good of others, particularly those who are most likely to be denied dignity and value in society. So we looked at these verses last week, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 8 to 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. I believe that as we pray and seek God's heart and commit ourselves to doing justice, that he is going to lead us into different areas of need such as helping the poor or fighting human trafficking or even defending the life of the unborn or looking after the mentally ill. But without question, the justice issue that has gripped and even divided our nation this past month and really uh, these past several years is the racial inequality experienced by the black community. You know, in politics, there is what Uh, is uh, referred to at times as uh, third-rail issues, like abortion or Social Security benefits. Uh, These issues are so taboo that tackling them is considered political suicide, like touching the high-voltage third rail of a railway system. You just don't do it. You stay away from it. Uh, Racism, I think, is the same way. If you want to start a fight with someone, uh, talk about race with them. In the last few weeks, I've been reading books on justice and race in America at actually a really fever pace. And it just feels to me like I'm actually more ignorant now than I first uh, began reading these books. I've come to realize how complicated and quickly evolving this conversation on race in America has become, and frankly, how easy it is to misspeak on the issue. The tension is palpable on social media, and God help anyone who is brave enough to enter into this highly charged environment and publicly declare their own personal convictions on this matter of race and racism. And to be honest, it's been a bit daunting and overwhelming trying to process it all. Um, 
I sympathize with those who've chosen to steer clear of the whole race issue. And I, I shared this in the first message on justice, but you know, as the child of an immigrant family growing up here in America, I really have struggled to embrace my own ethnic identity. From a young age, I wanted more than anything to just simply belong, to be accepted as one of the guys. And so I tried my best to blend in with my white friends and not to draw attention to my Asianness. But you know, ignoring or denying our ethnic identity is not the answer. This summer, Pastor Lester will be going through this book, uh, Beyond Colorblind, by Sarah Shin. And I hope uh, many of you will consider signing up for it. Uh, Shin begins the first chapter of the book with this uh, brief encounter. She writes, Michael, a 24-year-old black man, was sharing with his small group about some hurtful experiences with racism that he had endured in the past year. An elderly white woman tried to respond to his sharing with grandmotherly kindness. Oh, Michael, when I see you, I see you. I don't see your color. Michael didn't know what to say, so he said nothing. But internally he thought, I'm a black man from Los Angeles. If you don't see my color, you might as well not see me at all. Using the paradigm of colorblindness, the woman was trying her best to affirm Michael's humanity and dignity. She was trying to say, I'm not one of those racist people who thought uh, color was a reason to degrade you. But what Michael heard was invalidation. I don't see you. Why do they miss each other? For this elderly woman, drawing attention to someone's color was associated with racism and prejudice. And so her remedy was to embrace a colorblind approach to everyone, ignoring their ethnicity. Uh, and really out of this uh, well-intentioned desire to treat everyone equally. But for this young black man, Michael, not acknowledging his color made him feel disregarded, invisible. It's tempting to think that colorblindness is the solution to racism. But our world is filled with one tragic incident after another, most of which never will make headline news that expose the truth that none of us can truly ignore color when it comes to relating to one another. But more importantly, God himself is not colorblind. In God's eyes, our ethnicity is a beautiful and inseparable part of our identity. Acting like we don't see color when we look at each other is not only impossible, but it isn't even desirable as a solution to our race problems. Shin continues, Colorblindness seems to deny the beautiful variations and cultural differences in our stories. How would you feel if you shared something that's part of your Chinese, black, Irish, or Colombian background, and someone replied, I'm colorblind? <laughs> 
Blind to what? The food, stories, and cultural values that make up the valid and wonderful parts of who we are? Colorblindness, the well-intentioned, is inhospitable. Colorblindness assumes that we are similar enough that we all only have good intentions so we can avoid our differences. Given the ethnic tensions exposed by the 2016 uh, election, we're seeing instead that our stories are different and those differences cannot be avoided. Racially charged, ethnically divisive comments flood our social media outlets and news screens. Good intentions alone are ineffective medicine for such scars. The idea that we have transcended ethnic difference has been exposed as a mirage. We need something beyond colorblindness, something that both values beauty in our cultures and also addresses real problems that still exist in our society decades after the civil rights movement. You know, if I'm honest, I think this is the way we've approached ethnicity even here at ICC. We generally avoid talking about race and culture and ethnicity. I think it's born out of a fear that nothing good could really come out of those discussions and that very likely it is only going to separate us and pull us apart. But is that really biblical when it is such an important part of our God-given identity? Rather than making colorblindness our goal, is there a way that we can redeem our ethnic differences and even celebrate them together in a way that honors God and enriches our own faith? You know, it would be impossible for me to attempt anything even close to a comprehensive theology on race and racism in a single message like today's. Instead, I hope that my message today will just be the beginning of an exploration on what the Bible has to say about ethnicity in the kingdom of God. And the passage that I want to draw your attention to this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. It is arguably the most comprehensive and explicit teaching on the gospel's impact on our ethnicity. And today, I want to apply this text more personally at an individual level. And then next week, I will unpack how the truths in this passage ought to impact the way that we do church, and lastly, how we engage with the brokenness of our world. And so let's take a look at this text together, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his, his flesh 
the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You know, before going any further and unpacking this text, I want to show you a brief video. Uh, Pastor Aram Laguna, who used to be on staff at ICC many years ago, uh, actually made this video for a sermon that I had preached previously uh, about a decade ago. So let's watch the video and then we'll go on. I know that wasn't the most inspiring or heartwarming video, but I think it's an accurate depiction of the human condition. It's a world filled with alienation and distrust, racism and hostility. And we've been seeing this truth on full display in these past weeks. Paul describes the situation as, quote, a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. This isn't just a diversity problem, as if it were just two different groups of people struggling to understand one another. But it was a state of active hatred between them. They couldn't stand each other. And it's tragic how two groups of people can live uh, so physically close with one another and yet have such to- live in such totally different worlds and want nothing to do with each other. But through Jesus' death on a cross, he brought these two hostile groups together, reconciling them with each other and making them into what Paul calls one single humanity. You know, the order in which Paul describes what happened is really interesting. You would actually expect Paul to say that the order of things would be that God first reconciled himself with us, and then after that reconciliation with God, we would experience this horizontal reconciliation with one another. But what he actually says is that God reconciles us together to make a single humanity And then out of that single humanity, making peace with us through the cross of Christ, this vertical reconciliation with God. And scholars believe that the reason why Paul states it in this order is to show how central this reconciliation with one another is in God's plan of salvation. In other words, breaking down these walls of hostility and creating a single humanity isn't just a minor footnote in the story, but it's one of the central themes of God's unfolding kingdom. 
What the Bible tells us is that when sin entered our world, it not only broke our relationship with God, but it also did in our relationship with one another. When God calls Adam out for eating the forbidden fruit, he refuses to accept responsibility, and instead he blames his wife Eve. And by the next generation, the first murder will take place as Cain kills his brother Abel. And as humanity grows and different cultures emerge, one group begins to dehumanize another. And here's the thing. Once we dehumanize someone, it opens the door for all kinds of abuses against them. Through this Black Lives Matter movement, the history of white racism against black people has become the focus of national attention. But I think it's important to acknowledge that racism isn't a white problem per se. It is a human problem. This dividing wall of hostility describes the human condition. And all of us are guilty. The racism problem, in other words, isn't out there of what being perpetrated by a bunch of those bad people. But it's a result of the sin that resides inside every one of us. All of us contribute to the race problems in our world today. In order to address the gross disparities that exist in America based on color, there does undoubtedly have to be policy changes in everything from our criminal justice system to our education system to the way that social services are distributed. But if the national conversation is limited only to policy change, I don't know if real meaningful reconciliation will ever take place among the races in America. I think even as I look at this passage that we're looking at today, the Bible invites each of us to look inwardly at our own hearts and realize that sin affects the way that we view others. This dividing wall of hostility, particularly those who are different than us. Mark Roberts in his commentary on Ephesians writes, Given the widespread divisions in our world, we can feel overwhelmed. We may ask, how can I hope to bring reconciliation to this world? Often God begins with us, helping us see the walls that we erect or to which we contribute. These walls might be obvious ones like racial prejudice, ethnic hatred, greed, or unbridled nationalism. Yet the walls that keep us from experiencing reconciliation may be more hidden, such as physical and relational distance from people who are different from us, habits of self-centeredness, traditions that foster separatism, or just plain ignorance that breeds insensitivity. You know, I've heard of these implicit bias tests that are being offered to people to expose the hidden biases that they have toward groups that are different than them. And so I thought I would actually take one of these tests myself. This idea of implicit bias refers to these 
attitudes and stereotypes that operate at a subconscious level, but nevertheless affect the way that we think about or treat people who are different than us. And so I took this online test, and basically what it was asking us to do is to, you know, show a black face and a white face, and then you would see an object show up. It could be a harmless object or it could be a harmful object. A harmless object could be something like a blender or a cell phone or something. And a harmful object would be like a gun or a cannon or a sword. And they would run this test in several rounds. And sometimes they would say, associate the harmful object with the black person. And then in another round, it would say, associate the harmful object with the white person and vice versa with the harmless objects. And as I'm taking this test, I know exactly what I should be doing and I know exactly what they're testing for. But the thing is that you're supposed to make your choices as quickly as you possibly can so that it is based more on your instincts. And I'm just seeing myself fumbling over this And it was scary to me. I didn't even have to complete the test to know what the results were going to show as to why it was so much more instinctive to associate these deadly weapons with black people than it was with white people. And what these researchers tell us is that this happens pretty much across the board in America. And the crazy thing is it's irrespective of actually your skin color And irrespective of your political leanings, I think those who tend to be more progressive and left-leaning assume that they will score better on these implicit bias tests and not be biased against black people. But the data doesn't lie, and it shows that they are just as likely to show biases as those on the conservative right. It, it just shows how deeply seeded these biases are that there's something about how we are raised in America that orients us in this way and is operating at such a deep subconscious level that we don't even realize that these are the attitudes that I hold toward certain groups of people who are different than me. This um, dehumanizing of those who hold different values than us is rampant in politics, isn't it? Compare these two incidents. When Hillary Clinton called Trump supporters, quote, a basket of deplorables, and when Eric Trump, Donald Trump's son, said, quote, Democrats aren't even human. It's likely that one of these statements makes you a lot more upset than the other. What about when President Trump called women, quote, dogs, compared with others calling President Trump, quote, a pig? Again, there is a high likelihood that one of these statements bothers you far more than the other. But if we really see things from God's perspective, all these statements ought to grieve us, shouldn't it? Because every person is made in the image of God. 
and deserves dignity. But once we dehumanize an individual or a group of people, it gives us permission to hate them without any guilt or remorse. Because in our minds we think they are not deserving of that dignity. Unless we can see everyone as image bearers of God deserving dignity, then the problem is that all that will matter is whoever is in power. And those who are oppressed may one day become oppressors themselves. And all we end up is in this destructive cycle of those in power abusing those who have no power. And this is not the picture of healing and reconciliation that the gospel has in mind. Brene Brown, in her book, Braving the Wilderness, writes these words. We must never tolerate dehumanization, the primary instrument of violence that has been used in every genocide recorded throughout history. And if our faith asks us to find the face of God in everyone we meet, that should include the politicians, media, and strangers on Twitter with whom we most violently disagree. When we desecrate their divinity, we desecrate our own and we betray our faith. An important example is the debate around black lives matter, blue lives matter, and all lives matter. Can you believe that black lives matter and also care deeply about the well-being of police officers? Of course. Can you care about the well-being of police officers and at the same time be concerned about abuses of power and systemic racism in law enforcement and the criminal justice system? Yes. I have relatives who are police officers. I can't tell you how deeply I care about their safety and well-being. I do almost all of my pro bono work with the military and public servants like the police. I care. And when we care, we should all want just systems that reflect the honor and dignity of the people who serve in those systems. But then it's the case that we can care, but then if it's the case that we can care about citizens and the police, Shouldn't the rallying cry just be all lives matter? No, because the humanity wasn't stripped from all lives the same way it was stripped from the lives of black citizens. In order for slavery to work, in order for us to buy, sell, beat, and trade people like animals, Americans had to completely dehumanize slaves. And whether we directly participated in that or were simply a member of a culture that at one time normalized that behavior, it shaped us. We can't undo that level of dehumanization in one or two generations. I believe Black Lives Matter is a movement to rehumanize black citizens. All lives matter. But not all lives need to be put back into moral inclusion. Not all people were subjected to the psychological process 
of demonizing and being made less than human so we could justify the inhumane practice of slavery. You know, I think Brene Brown captures it so well in these words. And it's really the rationale by which I uh, am supporting what's going on right now in the protests with the Black Lives Matter movement. And yet, at the same time, by supporting this movement and wanting to try to fight for the recovery of the humanization and the dignifying of black people in America, it doesn't mean, therefore, white people are the enemy. Because if that's all it amounts to, then all we're going to do is go around and around and around and just ultimately destroying one another. But the hope of the gospel is so much greater than that. What I see in these words of Paul in Ephesians 2 is that the cross is the great equalizer. Look at what we just read earlier in verses 17 to 18. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. In other words, what brings us together is this common understanding that we are one humanity all in need of God's salvation. None of us stands in a particular position of favor because all of us have sinned. All of us have done wrong. All of us are guilty. And yet what unites us is the cross of Christ that he alone has rescued us and saved us. And so when I realize that I am as much in need of that mercy as you are, then who am I to cast stones against you? And I believe that it is not until Christians can preach this message loud and clear of the reconciliation that the cross of Christ alone can truly bring to us because all of us are in need of that grace, all of us are in need of that mercy, that we will take real meaningful steps to healing this nation. And so it cannot begin with policy change per se. It cannot start with us pointing the finger at others and figuring out who the villains are in this story. It has to begin with us, with a deep inward look that's only possible through the healing that the gospel provides. And says, because of what Christ has done, I can look and face the darkness in my own heart, knowing that I have been forgiven of it. And we can come before the Holy Spirit and ask for that revealing work to be done so that we can be a genuine part of the solution and not part of the problem. There are undoubtedly public ramifications and ways that Christians need to advocate for change at a policy level. And there's much to be said about what that means for the church of Jesus Christ, and I want to deal with that stuff next week. But as we open up our discussion about race and racism, I pray that it would begin with moments of personal reflection. Where are the biases in my own heart? Where are those places of, of secret hatred that I carry toward a certain group of people 
that I realize I am dehumanizing and don't think are deserving even of the same grace or mercy that I would afford to others. We need new eyes to see how God sees every single one of us as one single humanity brought together in the common need for the cross of Christ and the salvation that he alone can bring. Let's pray. Father, we ask of you to do that work in our hearts that only you can do. We're so thankful that in our lostness that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, to show us the way, to mend our broken relationship with you. But even more so than that, to also tear down these dividing walls of hostility that exist with us and others. And so help us to become agents of that healing and reconciliation with others. And so begin that work first in us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. As I shared with you the last time that we took communion together, I think there's just this um, natural tendency that we all have to um, make this such a private and personal transaction between us and God on an individual basis. And I think there's a danger, therefore, of losing the real corporate nature of the Lord's table. And as we come to this table, I think we all need to be reminded that the work that God is doing of salvation in our world is not simply at an individual level, saving people one by one. But his plan of salvation is so much greater than that, of seeing the impact of the gospel transforming fundamentally how we relate with one another. And so even in light of the message preached today, as we come to the table today, I pray that even as you take the bread and take the cup, it will be a reminder that all of humanity is in the same boat, all of us lost, all of us with these horrible attitudes toward others that reveal the depth of our brokenness and fallenness. And yet, because of the cross of Christ, there is the hope of real healing and reconciliation, not only between us and God, but with us and others, especially those who are different than us, of a different culture, of a different ethnicity. And so as we come to the table today, I pray that that would be what is also being represented by taking this cup and taking the bread, is that we become recipients of that reconciliation and also agents of that reconciliation as well. And so let's take from the bread which represents the broken body of Christ, broken on our behalf, and also take from the cup which represents the blood that Christ shed on the cross to purchase for us this new covenant with us and God. Lord, we come to this table to acknowledge that we are all people in need of your mercy. We realize that there is nothing good in us but you are good and you are faithful. And so we pray, Father, even as we acknowledge the gift of the reconciliation we have received with you, 
you would make us to be agents of that reconciliation, to call others into the same mercy that we have received, and to even, out of the message of your kingdom that is here, proclaim reconciliation even among one another. And so use us in this critical moment in our nation as your people to be agents of healing and reconciliation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.